In today's episode, we continue talking about intertextuality. In our churches, we love to use big words. We obfuscate our pedagogy through superfluous grandiloquence, manifesting hubris instead of demureness. See what I mean? Inconceivable. While I might have a speech impediment, I certainly do not want to have a preach impediment. These get in the way of God's message reaching our hearts and minds. Let's dig through those big words and learn something incredible. Before we get started in today's topic, let me remind you to go and check out EdenHollow.com. This is the company I started to start publishing some Bible study guides and spiritual books, but we're starting to branch out into some fiction and even talking to some other authors. We'd love to have you check out what's going on at EdenHollow.com. Now let's jump into today's episode. In the last episode, Jared Salch explained intertextuality. That's not a word we use very often, but it is a process of looking at the scripture that we should use quite often. It is looking for the patterns. It is looking for the clues that are found in the text themselves. And it is the exact same way that the apostles and the other writers of the New Testament use the Old Testament to try to draw the connections between what was said about the Messiah and about the New Covenant, and pulling those things forward. Well, we're going to continue that discussion today. Let's jump right in. I'm trying to put myself into the shoes of the listener here Mm -hmm. and trying to think, you know, what are the questions they would have to try to dig deeper? Because I really think most people who have grown up with the Bible in their laps want to become better Bible students. You know, that I mean, obviously there are exceptions to that rule, but I know I'm that way. You're that way. We we want to know more. We want to dig deeper. Yet what we often do is we tend to side with caution, and we tend to you know elevate examples like the Bereans. You know, Acts chapter 17. They were more noble-minded because they heard the things Paul was saying, and they compared everything to Scripture. Uh, which is which is noble. I mean that that's it's identified as a positive trait there. And I think sometimes when you take a teaching like what you're talking about, drawing these connections and even kind of some unseen connections between the New and Old Testament, the the automatic response for the cautious listener is, well, that's not what it says. I mean, yeah, and we kind of kick back a little bit because it's not. I mean, it's not stated that way on the page. Right. How do I, as a Christian who is being cautious with the Word of God, wanting to make sure that I understand what God truly says, take ideas like interconnectivity and these different passages and the relationships between them and evaluate them honestly, but also open-mindedly? So I would say, first of all, this is something we all do. Uh, My favorite example of this is if you think about the binding of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. Uh, You see Isaac, this only son, the beloved son, who's going to be sacrificed on the temple mount or the site of the future temple down. He carries the wood of a sacrifice up himself, right? And we look at that, and every single one of us says, this is is a type of Jesus. You know, Jesus is the only beloved son. Um, Jesus carries the cross on his back. Jesus is, is sacrificed on the temple mount. And look at how God's like Abraham. 
And I think every probably one of us, when we've taught Genesis 22, have made that connection. And yet that connection is nowhere explicitly made in the New Testament. Nowhere. And that surprises people a lot of times. They're like, wait a second, but we just accept this. Well, yeah, um, because it's clearly something that, that, that we're supposed to accept. But so we all at least agree in principle. Now, when we get to the specifics, obviously people are going are gonna to differ a little bit. But here's a test case, I think, that can show us a good way to think through this cautiously. I'm going to tell you a story from the Bible, and I want you to identify what the story is. After an important battle, um, a king is in his bed in the middle of the day. He looks out and he sees the possession of one of his subjects. And even though this king had much and this the Israelite had little, he wanted what the Israelite had badly. He sought to acquire it. He made inquiries about how he could get it. But it was unlawful for him to get what he wanted. Uh, but no wasn't an answer he was interested in. Instead, he sent a letter to the person with influence, which led to that Israelite being killed. And with the Israelite out of the way, the king goes and he takes ownership of that possession and enjoys it as his own. But God knew what he had done, and God sent a prophet to the king, and the prophet confronts the king about the unlawful murder and possession about what he had taken. And yet, at the words of the prophet, in spite of all he'd done, the king repents, and God has mercy. And God said, I'm not going to take away the kingdom in your lifetime, but in the lifetime of your future descendant. What story is that? It makes me think of two, actually. But the more obvious one is the 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 obvious one is David with Bathsheba. It also makes me think of Ahab with uh, Naboth's vineyard. Uh, but where are we going with this? It's those are the two stories, right? Okay, They're the same okay. story. And Whew, in fact, past. exactly. In <laughs> fact, if you do this a lot of times and kind of take away the specific names and put them in general terms, you realize we see these stories a lot. But if you dig deeper into those two passages, Ahab in 1 Kings 21 and David in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, then you actually read the exact same phrases in a lot. We have an exact connection. The stories go in the same order. You know, they're on their bed. They're longing for the possession of another. They kill to take possession. They use a proxy to do it. They both specifically read the word for a letter and the God sends a prophet. And so as you go through this even more deeply, you realize, wait a second. Both are told to arise and eat. And these are the only two kings, both in Samuel and in the book of Kings, where we read there was none like them. But there's the difference. You know, these intertextuality studies is not just about seeing they're the same, but it's like those, uh, you know, if you were like me and grew up in Alabama, you might have gotten the Highlights magazine or something yeah. like it where you'd have the two pictures and you find the differences. Here is the point of the similarity. It's so you look for the differences. And for David, of course, we realize there is no one like him um, who does what's right in the eyes of the Lord, like David. But in 1 Kings 21, 25, we read there was none like him who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab. And as you go through this story, as you read through these two things as uh, similar, the point isn't merely intellectual. It's not just like, oh, that's cool. Here's a cool little Jeopardy thing that I can do. It's instead that you realize how God cares about all of these events, that even the king is held up to the murder of an Israelite, of an innocent person, that God sees the blood that is shed and he cares about it and seeks to, uh, to eliminate this. 
you know, the blood of innocence always brings about a curse. Abel's blood cries out from the ground. It brought a curse on Cain. Naboth's blood cries out from the ground and brings a curse on Ahab's family. Uh, Uriah's blood brings about a curse. And yet Jesus's blood brings about the redemption. You know, Jesus is a lot like Uriah, who's sent to a battlefield with his own death warrant in his hand, and he dies abandoned and alone. Jesus is like Naboth, who's the heir to the vineyard, for which he is slain so that the workers think they can take it as a possession. Both Naboth and Jesus are accused of blasphemy by two false witnesses and left to die an ignoble death outside of the capital city. But God knows. And so when you read about the situation and you see that, you know, as uh, James Bazan said, the world's tyrant tyrants may think that blood is just blood and that through the shedding of blood, you can silence the voices of people you don't like. God hears that and redeems it and brings it back in. And God's justice is going to be done. And so you realize that, wait a second, these aren't just two stories. There's actually a third one. But this is what happens with Jesus as well. You've given us several examples that are very obvious examples. Um, you know, obviously the, the Isaac, you know, Genesis 22 story and Jesus you know, here we've got the, you know, David and Naboth, maybe a little less obvious than the, than the Isaac, Jacob, you know, other things I can think of that aren't necessarily stories, but Genesis one and the gospel of John chapter one begins mm -hmm. within the beginning. And then you've got all these comparisons there, uh, you know, making the points that John is making that this is essentially a new beginning. It's a, you know, the, the, the kingdom of Christ is the creation God was shooting for. And so you get these comparisons. What do you do or how do you identify when these interconnections are more subtle? Yeah. So we see the easiest one to identify for us is when you get an explicit citation. You know, when Paul or Jesus says, as scripture says, blah, 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 blah. Real obvious. You know, most of us are pretty good about going down in our Bibles and finding the citation and going back and checking the context, and that's really good. A little harder than that is when there's uh, more of a, an illusion or an inexplicit reference. One example of that might be in Paul's famous, uh, my favorite passage in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. But he says, you know, so at that time, the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Christ the Lord of the glory of the Father. Well, it's harder because that is an exact citation to recognize that Paul seems to be alluding to Isaiah 45, verse 23, which talks about, By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone forth in righteousness, the word that will not return, and to me every knee will bow and every tongue confess, because it's split a little bit. So these, these sorts of allusions are more difficult to, to piece together, and they're more difficult because they really require us to know our Bibles really well. And I would say that one of the best things that's going to help us identify these is just reading our Bibles more. Um, and that, that, that's never a bad thing. But another thing that can help is if we're looking and saying, okay, how tight are these connections? You know, if someone says, oh, this is a connection to this other word because it uses the word the. Well, that's not going to be very, very strong. The higher the number of connections, whether they're the same words or the same ideas being used, the better. And the more, for lack of a better word, dense they are, the better. If you have five of these really particular words out of a group of 15, 
that's going to be more influential than out of a group of 50. And the more rare those are, the better. So if a word only occurs you know, twice in the entire Bible, uh, that's probably not an accident. One of my favorite examples of this is, remember what Pharaoh makes the Israelites build when they're in, in slavery in Egypt? The store cities of Pithom and Ramses? You know mm-hmm. that word store cities is only used one other time in the entire other Bible? Do you know who makes the Israelites build store cities? Solomon. And if you read and you see that, you say, wait a second, is that an accident? You actually look through the rest of, in that context in, of Solomon, and you realize that in the book of Kings, Solomon is actually being portrayed as a Pharaoh who is enslaving Israel. You know, he marries the daughter of Pharaoh. He goes back yeah. down to Egypt to get horses and gold and chariots. He's taxing and laying a heavy burden on the Israelites. And they need to be released and saved. And who do you have that saves the Israelites from Pharaoh Solomon? Well, it's the king of the north who flees down to Egypt and kind of does this own like similar Moses story, but then unfortunately becomes Aaron by setting up golden calves. So sometimes if you find those specific words or those specific stories, then it opens up your eyes a little bit and said, let's go back and little, 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 little closer and say, am I making this up or is there a lot more here? And the more things you see that are an accident, uh, the better, that the more likely you are to, to find something that's actually there instead of just making something up. That's awesome. What other keys do we have? So we've got specific words we can look up or similar words. Mm-hmm. Uh, how far do you go with synonyms? Because I know you've you've also got the issue of different languages. So there's going right. to be some synonyms or some just similar ideas. How far do you go with that? Well, the easiest way to deal with synonyms is to, instead of looking from Hebrew to Greek when you're dealing with the New Testament, look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, whether you want to call it the Septuagint or the Old Greek. That is typically used more often by the New Testament authors, even Paul. Um, and even, even Matthew used about 50% of his quotations come from from the Greek uh, Old Testament rather than the Hebrew one. So that can eliminate some of those problems. And then depending on how much you know Greek you know, that can become an, an issue one way or another. But this unfortunately is one of those better felt than told uh, situations. You know, we're dealing with art rather than math sometimes. Yeah. But another key that you can use is not just the specific words, but these sort of events. Um, you know, we did that with uh, Ahab and Naboth's vineyard and David and Bathsheba. When you line up the story, they're the same story. A really easy to see example of this is when you read the story of the Levite and the concubine in Judges chapter 19. That's a retelling of what story? Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Yeah. And you look at it and you're like, wow, they're the exact same story. But of course, the emphasis there when you get to Judges 19 is the implication that actually Israel's just as bad, if not worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're going to be destroyed. And that's a powerful connection that is even more clear when you realize that, oh, this is what's going on with Sodom and Gomorrah as well. Um, So those sorts of reading events in a certain way is another really cool key that can help you identify these sorts of things. So what about if, our search for interconnectivity starts creating problems, you know, and, and I'm thinking, you know, some of the 
differences between, say, the stories of Kings and the stories of Chronicles. You know, you've got all these differences, you know, and there are certain places where um, not only do the details not line up, but if we're using one of the stories for Kings to tell a story, but then you have a different telling of that story in Chronicles, you know, th does that create issues for us as far as trying to, I guess it's not issues because it might just eliminate some bad interpretation, but you know, speak to that. Yeah, so Kings and Chronicles is a, is a complicated subject anyway, just because they have very different goals. Mm -hmm. And I think that lying them aside each other, and this is the same true in the, in the Gospels. When you look at the different tellings of the same story in the Gospels, it should give us a better appreciation for what those inspired writers are doing in each place. Uh, when you look at the temptation of Jesus in Matthew, the, it's rearranged in Luke. The second and the third temptation are, are flipped. And that's because for the purposes of Matthew and for the purposes of Luke, they're emphasizing that third one as the most important for what they're going to do the rest of their gospel. And that's something we wouldn't even notice or pay attention to if we didn't have both of them. Yeah. And that's the same thing when we're reading Kings and Chronicles, is that when we have two tellings of the same story, um, that actually should help us better appreciate what the inspired writer is doing. Because these aren't accidents. This isn't like, oh man, I forgot how to do this, or I was copying it bad wrong, or I just made a mistake. These are intentional and inspired um, retellings of what's going on. And it's our job to pay closer attention to them. One of the most important things and benefits of reading intertextually is that it puts at its core using the Bible to interpret the Bible. And that's what we're always trying to do, is help use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And it seems pretty clearly that this is at least one of the ways that God wants us to do just that. So let me ask one last question, just on a, a practical basis. You said one of the best ways for us to get better at doing this is reading our Bibles, which mm -hmm. is, you know, obviously a, a good thing. But if I just sit down and read Genesis through Revelation every year, while that will give me a greater familiarity with the Bible, I don't know that it's going to help me make connections that I've not seen before because I'm so used to reading everything in this sequence. Yeah. Uh, and most of our Bible plans, I think, probably don't lend to helping interconnectivity. Yeah. Uh, they lend to us understanding uh, not even chronologically, like they, it just, it helps us understand the, the way in which the Bible's written and that's about it. So is there, are there ways that are good for us to do a better job reading our Bibles if we're trying to make some of these connections? Yes, there's a few things I think we can do. First of all, I think when we're reading the New Testament, then we should kind of always be seeking to have our, for lack of a better term, our Old Testament ears on. Because when the apostles and Jesus are speaking, the thing that connects everybody is the Old Testament. And so when we're reading a story in, you know, for example, the beginning of the, the Gospel of Mark, right? You're out in the wilderness. Or the reference we already used, Jesus the temptation. Then we need to have our Old Testament ears on to see, wait a second, what are the references going on here? Because when Jesus is out in the wilderness, that should be making us think, wait a second. The Israelites were out in the wilderness. You're like, is there something here? Well, Jesus is there for 40 days. Well, Israel was there for 40 years. Well, Israel was being tempted in the wilderness. Well, Jesus, and now you realize that this is not just something that happens in the New Testament. 
that Jesus is sort of becoming spiritual Israel, going into the wilderness for a group of 40, being tempted in every way. But the difference, of course, is that whereas Israel fails over and over and over and over again, Jesus succeeds. That Jesus is redeeming, in some ways, the failures of Israel. And that's, of course, what he's going to do throughout the rest of his life. And after we've made that connection, then all of a sudden it sort of spirals away. We're like, wait a second, 40? We've seen that before. It wasn't just the amount of time that Israel was in the wilderness. It wasn't just the time that Israel was in Canaan. It wasn't just the amount of time Moses was on Mount Sinai. It wasn't just the time that uh, Goliath is tormenting Israel before David shows up. It's not just the time that they're on the ark. Wait a second. Every time the number 40 shows up, it's a time of testing, and Israel always fails. And so that sort of brings us along and helps us connect different stories that we might not have connected already. In the same way that when Jesus says, hey, on the third day it's written, you're like, where's that written? But what do I see about the third day? What happens on the third day? What are all the stories that occur on the third day? So having our Old Testament ears on, and every time Jesus is referencing an idea or an event or even a place sometimes, like the wilderness, then we should sort of kind of go back through our catalog of Old Testament uh, narratives and say, what is he, what should I be thinking about when he does this? Another way, another key for when this is probably more useful sometimes when we're doing the Old Testament, but it's good everywhere else, is after you've read uh, I don't know, a chapter, a story, the, the character of, you know, gone through Abraham's life or something, sit back and retell that story to yourself using your own words and say, well, what's going on here? You know, when you read Abraham going down to Egypt in Genesis chapter 12, you say, wait a second. Abraham goes down to Egypt. He's oppressed by Pharaoh. God saves him by giving the Israel, the Pharaoh plagues, and Abraham comes out with riches. Well, this is a foreshadowing of the Exodus. <laughs> and when you've retold yourself that story, then all of a sudden you're like, wait a second. This this is what's going on. And so often God expects the Israelites to have connected what's happening to them to what has happened in the past. And sometimes, or almost always, they failed. But we can't afford to fail in the same ways. We need to realize that what God is doing is part of a great stream of tradition of things that he's done a bunch of times before. And appreciate that if God saved us then, he can save us now. What a powerful end to a conversation about intertextuality. We don't want to miss the clues God has in his word about what he's doing for us and all the good we can experience by having a relationship with him. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And thank you, Jared Thoughts, for opening our eyes to maybe some processes or methods that we can use in order to try to better understand the word of God. If this episode has been helpful, please share it with others, comment on us, let us know what you think about the work that is being done here at Preach Impediment. I apologize for the little bit of background noise you had in the episode. It's hard to get by yourself when you work in a college full of people who love each other as Jared does down at Florida College. And I appreciate your patience with me for taking a couple of weeks off from getting these episodes out. There will be more episodes to come. I encourage you to tune in as more topics are discussed in the coming weeks. Until next time.